official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Megan Wolf. And I'm your co-host, Carly Sharon. And we're here with Shubayan Chakrabarti. Thanks for being here, Shubayan. Thank you so much. So let's just start right off. Um, could you tell us a bit um, in general terms about what your research is about? Right, so I'm at the Theory Center, and uh, what I do, the, the field I'm in is uh, called post work, and in general terms, it's about anti-work politics. Um, so although it, it sounds esoteric, but it actually has a lot of cultural currency if you think of very pop culture terms like quiet quitting and uh, the great resignation, and these terms have been floating around dur- during uh, the COVID-19 uh, on various news networks. Uh, so in that sense, post work uh, ha- is, is very much alive. Uh, and the field in general is about thinking about what role work plays in our lives and why we have such a work-centered living. And uh, it's a critique of some of the self-help tropes as well, like hyperproductivity, uh, and hustle culture. Theoretically, it it relates to a Marxian strand of thinking called autonomism, uh, which was uh, an Italian movement around the second half of the 20th century. And uh, so autonomism is a reinterpretation of the more conventional reading of capitalism, where if, if, if you think of the more conventional reading of capitalism, uh, we live under this economic system called capitalism, and workers are cogs in the wheels of uh, capitalism. Uh, So workers are reacting to the changes capitalism makes, uh, the way the economy evolves, and the the workers would have to evolve and adapt to that. Now that's the received version of of, um, how the economy works. Uh, Autonomism actually reverts this, Uh, so the Italians uh, they say that it's actually the history of the working class, the history of the workers that we're in, and it's capitalism, uh, the economy, which responds to uh, the working class from time to time. And so I can give you an example of this. Uh, so Slava Zizek uh, talk, talks about the changing nature of authority in the workplace, and he uses the figure of like uh, the, the, the the distinction between uh, the very authoritative father figure and the more modern, progressive, benevolent understanding or compassionate father figure. So the authority, the old school authoritative father figure would say something like, well, you have to go to go and visit your gr- grandmother. I'm not taking no for an answer. That's a demand. That's an order. You, you can't say no. And uh, in contrast to that, uh, the the more uh, the set the second figure would say, well, I would like it if you go visit your grandmother, but it's completely your choice. But your grandmother and I would be happy if you do so. But it's completely your choice. Uh, and Zizek says that it's more difficult to refuse in the second scenario because uh, the father figures manage to manipulate you in a bit, whereas it's more easy to revolt against the first authoritative figure because there's an antagonistic uh, feeling, uh, a dynamic between um, the two. And in the workplace, uh, this plays out in the form of the very friendly manager, the working family, uh, we're all in this together, and, and rhetor- the rhetorics of compassion and uh, being being the working family and being a very close group. 
and and so you tend to internalize authority so this is one way in which um uh, capitalism uh, adapts to the workers and so that's autonomism so we we talk about being yourself so the new liberal in the new liberal age you're encouraged whether you're in an organization or you're working on your own you're encouraged to bring your private self to work uh, and use your private self for profits and by private self I'm talking about your emotions your your creative impulses the self you are with your friends family significant other you bring that aspect to you uh, to work um, and so you you quote-unquote be yourself at, at work and so this this is how capitalism addresses accusations of alienation uh, where in the factory stage of capitalism we had the uh, the, the less invested worker who, who felt alienated from work uh, because it was uh, because the worker felt um, separated from the process and did not have any personal investment and so in entrepreneurial neoliberalism uh, you're expected to bring yourself, your inventive self, to work. And some of the high priests of, of, of this is uh, techno figures like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. It's very telling that the, the very first catchphrase of uh, Apple was think different. So it, it was really about your cognitive capacity. And, so, and this is where my focus is. My focus is on cognitive work. It's uh, a shift from factory work of bodily toil towards uh, work that that engages your cognitive faculties, your mental faculties. Uh, so it's about creating knowledge and uh, engaging uh, your creative potential over bodily toil. Now this purportedly gives the body a reprieve. So uh, unlike the alienated worker in the factory who would use the body towards its own debility this pretends or purports to give the body a relief but the work that the body performs in this situation is actually bodily debility in the form of depression burnout just physical frailty back aches um, it's also it's also pretty telling that most work organizations have things like medical leaves uh, chiropractors uh, there's a theorist called David Harvey who says, uh, like, having a holiday in capitalism is the inability to work. Um, so the body hasn't really left uh, the workplace in, during cognitive work. It, it's just concealed. Uh, so that's basically uh, my argument in, in my ongoing dissertation. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm just wondering, could you maybe just clarify a bit what your, like, research question is or like mm -hmm. if you have a specific yes um, research question that you're you're studying yeah, yeah. Uh, so the research question for me is the conceal the concealment of the body during cognitive work so I'm calling this embodied rhetoric uh, so the body the work that the body performs during cognitive work is its own destruction uh, and this I'm simply exploring ways this uh, in which this happens um, specifically the relationship between work and guilt. Okay. And we've managed to incorporate a very diffuse version of original sin into our 
somewhat post-religious society. Uh, so the story of original sin, I mean, there are two versions, there are two sources of this in, in my work. One is the biblical story of, of the fall and the other philosophical counterpart, which comes from Descartes' definition of the self as a thinking thing. Uh, now, in the biblical story, as uh, it, it, uh, most, pe- most people know, uh, you have the story of the fall, Adam and Eve, who uh, eat from the tree of knowledge, and their sin results in their, comp- their apprehension of their bodies, and they're sent to, so they're sent to it on exile uh, to work. That's, that's their punishment. So, that's, um, so working is seen as punishment there. So that's one way to attack the body because the pre-sin selves of Adam and Eve were not uh, cognizant of their body. Uh, they became cognizant of their bodies when they committed uh, the, the original sin. Um, and the philosophical counterpart or the parallel to this is Descartes' definition of uh, he, the human as essentially a thinking thing. Now, around 1642, uh, he wrote Meditations, and there he, with, with a few thought problems, he came to the, uh, to the conclusion that our sense perceptions are unreliable, so everything that we sense can be cast into doubt, except, the, except for the fact that we are thinking. What we are thinking could be wrong or we could be duped by an evil demon or the devil. But the fact that we are thinking cannot, cannot be uh, refuted. And, and so that his conclusion was that we're thinking things. And the mind has, has a transcendental identity and it, it sort of, it's superior to the body because the mind is closer to God for Descartes because both mind and God are thinking things and uh, unlike the body, which can be cast into doubt, the mind cannot be cast into doubt. Uh, so, this is so. These are two ways the body is attacked by religion and uh, uh, by Descartes and philosophy, and they seem to mirror mirror each other. So, you have uh, the emphasis on guilt, and we tend to experience guilt. Uh, daily in, in, in our work, work life. Uh, for example, Sunday neurosis. Uh, you, you, might, you might have come across this, uh, this uh, sense of restlessness when, when you're not working, you feel guilty about not working. Uh, and things like workaholism and things like how to be more productive and feeling guilty uh, when you're procrastinating. So these are ways in which guilt in, invades our, our thinking when we're when we were working or when we were, especially at, during our leisure. Uh, so guilt is specifically, it's, it's embodied, uh, both in the biblical story, it's, it's, it's embodied because the curse that, 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 that is given is, 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 is on, on the whole of earth. So the body extends from the human body, but to the body of the envi- environment. So towards the end of my dissertation, I w- I'm also thinking about climate change and, and environmental decline uh, as an extension of bodily debility. So I would like to clarify just yeah. a couple things. Yeah. Um, so 
your work with Descartes, is yeah. that, can that be understood as a theoretical approach you're taking to this research? Uh, yes. Uh, so when Descartes came up with that definition of uh, human as a thinking thing, uh, that paved the way for how we view the modern atomized creative individual. So that created ripples in the philosophical world, but that has its effect in, in neoliberalism because neoliberalism encourages entrepreneurship. Okay. Yeah. So then my second part to that yeah. question is you mentioned neoliberalism a lot. Yeah. Um, for viewers who maybe don't have a background in neoliberalism, could you maybe elaborate just a bit more in layman's terms on, terms, sorry, on what um, neoliberalism is? Mm -hmm. Uh, so, again, the, the neoliberalism gets thrown around a lot in, in news, and we hear phrases like uh, free trade. Uh, but the best way to understand neoliberalism is an economy that's built around the self, uh, an, an economy that where the individual is valued and valued in the Marxist sense, where you create capitalist value. And each individual, let's say, is treated like a company. So you're 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 supposed to bring your self, your sense, your 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 identity, and you can bring it to the marketplace for profit. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm just curious. You mentioned um, working and how that relates to the environment as well, and like climate change. Can you maybe elaborate on that a bit more? Right. So uh, when we're talking about bodily debility. Uh, on the individual level, it's about having ailments, uh, again, burnout, depression, uh, physical frailty. On the social level, this is about atomization, lack of relational experiences. And on, on, on climate change, envi environmental decline, it's about willful denigration of nature. So felling of trees for, and unhousing, uh, unhousing bodies, uh, forest dwellers. <laughs> So that's how bodily denigration has three levels on the individual level, the relational level among uh, human beings and uh, what we're doing to nature. Um, and w I talked about the mind body split in Descartes, and we have a similar approach to uh, tackling climate change uh, in what's called decoupling. Uh, so this is something called eco-modernism. So eco-modernists uh, they prioritize techno fixes uh, to uh, the environment where you decouple nature from post-industrial society. So you keep nature away and mark nature as sensitive in the form of sanctuaries and forestry, and you keep the industrial class thriving where, you can, where capitalism can thrive and continue. And you could monetize nature uh, and send, and in the form of tourism. That's really interesting. It sounds like you're doing a project on, on so many levels yeah. on like, um, and I can't even begin to wrap my mind around it. So my, my question when you're talking about this is what made you um, choose Descartes or think of this mind-body split and go, that applies to so many levels in society from the environment to the way we carry ourselves in work and the relationship between guilt and all of those different things. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to research something that is less obtuse or abstract but, but it would it would matter to everybody and be more be seem accessible and work is something that that is universal especially if especially if, you, if you're living in in the city uh, we've uh, like even growing up we were we probably seen our parents go to work but 
You also have this, the, the, the issue of class where we are, we are unhousing people who are living different kinds of lives and we're bringing them into modernity to work as migrant laborers. Uh, so work is, is somehow uh, all-pervasive. And this thing about guilt is something which we've all felt viscerally, uh, especially in grad school with deadlines. Uh, so it's, it's something that's always with us. And I've always felt that we could be doing so much more with our time uh, besides uh, having this very linear trajectory, whichever career path people choose. I mean, you could have, you could, we said, we seem to be underestimating our own creative potential and uh, what we can do with free time. And uh, even in post work, there are writers who write about boredom, the creative power of boredom. Like, uh, if, if we let ourselves be bored, it, it, it opens up uh, creative possibilities uh, and, and new ideas. I'm curious if your research at all has looked into like how our perception of work or the, the like the guilt aspect of work has changed because of co- like during the COVID-19 pandemic if if you've looked into that at all and um, how people's attitude towards work has changed. There is definitely an aspect to that. So I mentioned uh, the, the great resignation which was a term that you, you could hear it in uh, across the, the the news cycles, whether whether it's CNN or Fox News, it doesn't it doesn't need to be left or right. So, so the 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 person who came up with this term is, is Anthony uh, Anthony Klotz. Uh, he's a business professor in Texas, also teaches in London. So he says that of course in, during COVID, people lost their jobs and some people uh, they switched to other industries, but still a significant amount of people. Uh, quit their jobs because first they could afford to do it they had savings or they had a backup plan or they had uh, yeah they, they could afford to do it uh so so for this demographic it was about rethinking what work means uh to their lives they do they didn't want to prioritize uh or uh, put work on a pedestal and even before COVID 19 uh, there's a subculture, I think, in Britain. Uh, this is in David Frayn's book, The Refusal of Work. So this subculture is called downshifting. So I can give you an example of this. So in one of the interviewees uh, was a woman who was a lawyer, uh, interviewed by the writer, uh, David Frayn. So she went to a ex- really expensive law school, and she was uh, a lawyer in, in a very reputed law firm for uh, a good many years. And then she decided to just quit in around her early 30s. And she worked as a waitress waitress, and uh, okay doing sporadic uh, appearances on her local radio. So it's something that's odd, uh, but odd because it's, you're doing that in your 30s, like early 30s when, when people tend to try, they try to peak uh, in their careers. But downshift, so this is an example of downshifting where, you, where you're deliberately being overqualified for your job to get more free time for yourself. So so, she, so Carly said a lot of interesting things about COVID-19 and, and you mentioned about the great resignation. You also mentioned and about um, the power in being bored, yeah. um, the creative power in being bored, maybe I should say. So I guess to bounce off of her question there, do you think COVID and the way work has been reconceptualized or maybe shifted because of it is there more of an emphasis on creativity are people more not work focused but making them more self-focused 
the Great Resignation had some uh, elements to that, but I, I think it's it's too early to make any calls about uh, how COVID affected work. I mean, there's also the, the side of people becoming a little more more desperate for work because of the economic fallout. Uh, so it's it's a little early for us to. Uh, I mean, we could definitely speculate, but yeah, it's a little too early to make any uh, final call on COVID and work. No, that's fair. Yeah. So I'm just curious, and Megan kind of touched on this before. I'm just wondering what kind of drew you to this particular uh, topic of study. Like, what sparked your interest in this field? Uh, yeah, as I said, I mean, I just I, I was always wondering why are we why are we why are we still working? It, given that uh, in most regions we regions of the world we've been able, in, especially if you th- think of it in in a class perspective, uh, in the urban space we've figured out uh, food, clothing, shelter, and housing, healthcare. Uh, so in, why can't we just distribute these duties amongst people and why are we still creating jobs for people and in fact David Graeber it's, it's, it's become a book it's, it's become a bestseller now so he's written a, bu- a book called bullshit jobs uh, so we're, we're we've come to a point uh, he's an anthropologist so he studied that we've come to a point uh, where we are inventing made-up white-collar high-status jobs for people which don't really do anything so for him like examples are public relations uh, or brand managers. Uh, so a, a good test whether a job is a bullshit job or not is that Im- try to imagine a world without those jobs. Like, Would you notice uh, if these jobs disappeared? For instance, cons- if construction workers or teachers disappear, you'd notice. Uh, but if lobbyists, uh, PR campaign managers... Uh, if they disappear, the, these middle management administrative positions that are created, if they disappeared, would we notice? Uh, and, and these creations are pretty recent in 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 jobs. So yeah, so we we we're we're at a point where we are still feeling compelled to go to work to the extent that we are creating made-up jobs, which don't amount to anything and which are which which prove pernicious for the worker as well as uh it doesn't add anything to the wider society i just want to jump in and say i think it's funny that you used like brand manager as a bullshit job because megan's our yeah. social media <laughs> <laughs> slash brand manager so uh, Megan, I, you're I, not needed there's the door <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll leave now um i would notice if my job wasn't there <laughs> No, this is Dave Gable, and rest, rest in peace, he's dead, so he can't defend himself. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's a really fun read. Uh, so it's, it's a good airport read. You could, you could have a look. Yeah, no, that sounds he, really def- he definitely didn't target Megan uh, <laughs> in general times. I'm hurt. I'm joking. Um, with that, though, I do have a question then, because I have a little bit of a background in not autonomous Marxism, but Marxism more generally. Um, you talk about these jobs that are just made up or or just they aren't they wouldn't be missed if they were taken away so I'm curious if this is a result of maybe late stage capitalism or capitalism having nowhere to go let's say and I wonder if that's something maybe your supervisor or committee will ask you but I'm I'm gonna pose the question so I think John Maynard Keynes was an economist who predicted that we'll come to a stage where uh, capitalism would reach uh, a stage where 
automation would take care of everything and we would have more more free time uh, but we chose consumption uh, so and in order to consume we need to produce and hence we just invented more work and uh, uh, created turbo capitalism and expanded the economy and speak of immaterialism because I'm talking about Descartes uh, immaterialism also functions in, in, in the way we're creating value out of thin air so if you think of the, the financial crisis in 2009 uh, we did create like random values like uh, subprime bonds and, and, and the, these these financial instruments, which are we, which were again uh, made up. So it's it's possible to just create value out of thin air. And on top of that, it's also possible to pretend that we have reached a, an immaterialism stage in in the form of cloud computing, because even when we when when you go paperless, there are actually server rooms that are kept away, which are actually emitting huge amounts of energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't really get rid of the body, but the body is just being concealed. I hadn't thought of it that way. I guess my last kind of question for you would be, where do you see yourself going career-wise after, like with what you, the knowledge you've gained from this um, research? Like what, what do you want to do next? Oh, I, I want to write books actually uh, on uh, so social theory. I mean, this is why uh, on, on a broader scale, this, this falls on a social theory and uh, vaguely Marxist uh, ideas, and uh, yeah, I want to be a professor after my uh, PhD, like most people are doing their uh, doctoral work. So that that's what I have in mind. And you know, while while we're asking some finishing up questions, um, kind of going off that, you want to be a professor um, with your research. Um, just very briefly, um, what what is some real world application from the work you're doing? Um, doesn't have to be long the answer yeah. but I'm, I'm just curious like uh, some of the like very pipe dream courses course designs I have in mind uh, courses on neoliberalism atomization uh, there's a con doesn't there's, there's a concept called liquid modernity that that ties into uh, w- what I'm doing so liquid modernity is uh, as opposed to solid modernity liquid modernity is about uh, individualizing the economy and and encouraging people to accept flux instability having multiple addresses multiple partners multiple jobs uh, the gig the gig, gig economy so uh, liquid modernity for those interested is is a term coined by Zygmunt Bauman uh, so yeah modernity neoliberalism atomization uh, so these are some ideas that I would like to probe and design courses around and also write um liquid modernity i'd love to get into it more with you because i actually work with sigmund bauman and i know exactly what you're talking about and i really wish we had more time but since we're going to wrap up um do you have any social media or email where people who are interested in your research can reach you uh the best way to reach me is by email so that's my my institutional email is schakr52 at uw.ca Alternatively, I have another email. Um, it's basically my full name. That's Shabhayan Chakrabarthi at yahoo.com. That's great. Um, so, again, thank you for being on the show, Shubhayan. It's really interesting to hear about your work, and we've ha- been happy to have you here. Thanks so much. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Megan Bull, and my co-host was Carly Sharon, and we've been speaking with Shubayan Chakrabarti. 
and this episode was produced by Amali Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western at 94.9 FM, and you can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.